This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Now remember, Isaiah wrote these last two sections, the one we just came out of, uh, and uh, this one, 56 through 66. He wrote them 150 years before Israel or Judah went into exile in Babylon. And he wrote them to comfort the discouraged people that were going to be there. And God promised to redeem his people and he wanted them to know that he had not abandoned them while they were in exile in Babylon. And so this, this exile in Babylon was because he was disciplining them for their sin against him. And he called his people to repent and trust him. And now in this last section in Isaiah 56 through 66, Isaiah sees further into the future. And he sees what God will do to redeem his people. So if in book two, Isaiah saw that redemption was promised, in book three, he sees that redemption is realized. And that's, there's, there's a little bit of difference between those two. And he sees redemption realized in book three. And uh, Isaiah 56 picks up where Isaiah 55 leaves off. And Isaiah 55, uh, God invited us to Jesus' banqueting table. And now in Isaiah 56, he invites us to a house of prayer, God's holy mountain, to worship him. And so there are three scenes in chapters 56 and 57. And the scene in Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, looks forward to Jesus' work on the cross. But in Isaiah 56, 9, verse 9 through Isaiah 56, 21, it looks back at the sin that landed Judah in exile. So we kind of have to hold these things in our mind as we work through this text. But bottom line is this, we are people in constant need of renewal. We are people in constant need of renewal. Now let's work through our passage. And so let's look in scene one. We'll call this preparation or prepare for salvation, prepare for salvation. And we're gonna spend the bulk of our time this morning in verses one through eight. They're very important verses. And so we're gonna spend most of our time there. But in verses one through eight, they point to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And in verse one, it sets the tone and where God calls his people to love justice and live righteous lives within the covenant community. That's what he's doing. And in verse one, Isaiah called Judah back to covenant faithfulness. And he didn't have to quote all the law to them, did he? He didn't quote all the law. He didn't go through all the covenant. He, he, just, he calls them to justice and righteousness. And they would have known what that meant. They would have known it was referring to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 and Levi. Levi Le- <laughs> I'm looking at you, Levi. Uh, Leviticus 19 and 18. Let me read these to us. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Leviticus 19, 18 says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And these two texts summarize all the law and the prophets. And these things were taught to the Jews when they were just 
really small. I mean, just as they were born, they began to teach them about the law and the prophets and they would summarize the law and the prophets in these two ways. And so they knew what Isaiah was talking about when he called them to this. Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted this. He said in Matthew uh, 22, 37, he uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And so when God calls his people to preserve justice and to do what is right, in a nutshell, he was calling them to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor in the same way that they love themselves. And then at the end of verse one, God says that his salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. And he was preparing his people. That is a big arrow pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah. Because Jesus would ultimately bring and fulfill justice and righteousness. He would live it and then he would die for our sins on the cross. That's what he was going to do. He was going to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. And then he would pay for our inability to do that. Our inability, we didn't want to do it and we couldn't do it. And he was going to die for that. That's what he did. So the arrival, the arrival of the Messiah would reveal the hearts of the people that they couldn't do that. that they didn't truly love God's righteousness and justice. And they didn't strive to practice it But those that did, who loved it, and they knew they fell short, who wanted it, who strove for it, who desired it, man, those people, when they met the Messiah, when he came, they would be happy. They would be filled with joy because they truly wanted righteousness. They truly wanted justice. And when they wanted it and they desired it and then they finally met Christ, they went, ah, finally, the one who's going to bring this and he's going to do this for me. So even today, when people hear the gospel explain, the very spirit of Christ lays bare the heart, doesn't it? They know whether they really love righteousness and justice or whether they don't. The heart is laid bare by the spirit of God. When we really understand the gospel, we understand that we do what we do because we love what we love, don't we? Do you really love righteousness and justice? Or do you just love looking like you do? Or you just love doing whatever you want to do? So God calls us to do a heart check on ourselves and see if we're truly loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we love him in this way, when we treat people justly, when we love kindness, we love mercy, we love generosity, and we serve them, this is what it means when Jesus is dwelling in the heart of that person. And it overflows in lives of graciousness and righteousness, and it will fill your life with joy. That's what it will do. You will be happy as you practice that, as you live that out. Joy comes from that because the Spirit of God is active and living in your heart, producing that, and you're receiving that joy. And then at the end of verse two, it seems like he deviates from his point when he calls us to keep the Sabbath, but it is not a deviation. It's it's driving the point deeper. Sabbath rest, he calls us to to keep the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath rest does, does not mean inactivity one day a week. It doesn't mean that. 
It means loving God's justice and righteousness every day of your life. You see, the principle of the Sabbath is that the part represents the whole. The part represents the whole. The principle of the Sabbath says that I'm going to rest in God and trust him and focus on him this one day. And, and, and it's not that I do inactivity. I'm practicing righteousness and justice with others and, and worshiping God. And that one day as I focus on him, it's going to overflow on the other days. It's going to fuel the other days. As I focus on God on this Sabbath day, it means it is representing that I want to do this every day. The part represents the whole. It means all of life is loving God and loving your neighbor in Jesus' name. So it's not inactivity, but it is activity motivated by the love of God for God and neighbor. It, it, this weekly celebration of Jesus that we practice on the Lord today is, is overflowing so that we may serve others today and every day of the week. And so the Lord's Day is what we might call a Sabbath rest. I'm not calling it a Christian Sabbath. I mean, some people do, and that's okay. But it's the Lord's Day. And it's the day we worship Christ and, and show God and, and, and increase our faith and trust in God. We do rest from our normal activities of work, but we're doing that as we worship Him. When Christ strengthens us, as we worship Him and we are filled and we serve others and we serve our neighbors. And so that is pushing us into a life of worship, a life of, of resting in God. And then in verses three through eight, God blows the minds of the Jews because he tells them this, that the day of salvation is coming, but it's coming not just for them, but it is coming for those who have previously been excluded or disqualified or outsiders. And he calls them the Gentiles or the foreigners and the eunuchs. Now, these two classes of people represent people who had previously been excluded from the covenant, previously been excluded from worshiping God. Foreigners or Gentiles is a concept that's fairly easy for us to understand. It was not easy for the Jews. It was a big deal for the Jews, for the Gentiles to be brought in. You remember when we studied Acts last year, how big a deal it was for the people in the new covenant to understand that God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. That just blew their minds. Well, God is preparing them, even in Isaiah, that I'm going to save the Gentiles. They're going to come into our family, into the family of God. So it's not just a challenging thing for the Jews to believe, which it was, but it was also hard for the Gentiles to believe as well. So God tells the Gentiles, don't say, Lord will excuse, exclude me from his people. God was not going to exclude them. Now, because of the work of the Christ on the cross that was coming, the Gentiles, the foreigners, those who were outsiders, will now become insiders. That's what was going to happen. God was making a way for the Gentiles to be saved. And then he talks about the eunuchs. Well, the eunuchs being brought into God's kingdom. This, the idea of the eunuchs is a bit more challenging. Why this group? Why use this as an example? Why use the eunuchs as an example of being brought into God's family? Think about it this way. Eunuchs were men, I hate to be too graphic here, so you may have to explain this to your children, parents, <laughs> uh, who had had their bodies mutilated. Let's call it that. Is, that. is that good? Andrea's shaking her head. 
had their bodies mutilated. Let's just say their, <laughs> their genitals mutilated. We could say that. All right. That's what had happened. And they did this in order to become temple prostitutes. They led pagan worship as eunuchs. That's what they did. And the law said that someone who had mutilated their body in this way, they were going to be excluded from worship of God. And these men had submitted to sexual desire to become temple prostitutes in order to lead pagan worship. And this was a very serious sin that they felt like excluded them from ever being included into God's family, ever being saved, ever being transformed, ever being renewed. Now all that was going to change. So when Jesus comes, he will initiate the new covenant that we celebrated earlier. And then the outsiders have a way to be brought in as insiders. Those who had sinned in unimaginable ways, who had been previously excluded, will be included if they turn from their sin and trust in Christ. In their minds, these eunuchs were had sinned so badly that they believed there was no way that God would accept them into the kingdom, into his family. They had mutilated their bodies, led pagan worship, and now they wanted to repent and, and, and worship the Messiah. And in their minds, in the Jews' minds and the eunuchs' minds, hey, there's no way God's going to accept me. Do you see what I've done? Do you see how bad I have sinned? It wasn't their ethnicity that was the barrier. It was their sin that was the barrier that has separated them from God. They believed they were no longer useful to God because they don't have the capacity to produce children anymore. They believed that they were too far gone to turn back. They were so far from the kingdom. There was no way God would save them. That's what they believed. And the Jews believed that too. But verse 5 says this, God says that within the walls of his house, that he will give them, those that covenant with him, those that worship him, he will give them a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. It is not about bearing children that gives you an everlasting name. It is about bearing my name. It is about belonging to him and then he makes your life fruitful. You tracking with me on that? That's what God's going to do. He gives you an everlasting name. And it is faith in Jesus that renews us and transforms us and makes outsiders insiders. Those who are excluded, included. That's what the work of the gospel does. That's what the work of Christ does. That's what his atonement accomplished on the cross. And friends, there are men and women and boys and girls today who in the name of warped sexuality and misplaced desires are mutilating their bodies. And one day, many of them are gonna want to come back to Christ or come to him for the first time. And when they do, will we love them? Will we hold out the gospel to them? Will we tell them that they can be saved, that you're not too far gone. There's nothing that you have done that will prevent you from coming into the kingdom of God. Christ will renew and make them fruitful in ways they could never imagine. Although there's damage done to their body and even to their minds, God will still make them fruitful. God will still save them because they will bear the name of Jesus. It will belong to him. So the question is, will we practice justice and righteousness with them? 
Will we do that? We tell them about the cleansing blood of Christ. Will we love our neighbors who seems that they have sinned so badly that they can't be saved? Will we tell them that Jesus' body was broken and mutilated in their place for their sin so they could be saved and given a new body in heaven? Will we do that? See, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Does not matter. There is no one too far gone, too bad, too far off for God to bring them into his family. He will do that. Praise God that he does. Isn't that great news? That's great news. That's the first scene. Well, the second scene is beware of wicked leaders. In verses 9 through 12 of Isaiah 56. A scene two, is, it's difficult to determine the setting of these verses. Hezekiah was king when Isaiah wrote. And so Isaiah's ministry ended sometime during Hezekiah's reign. We covered that back earlier when we're going through it. Most likely when Isaiah wrote, he's looking forward to the reign of Manasseh, who was a very wicked king in Israel. And the things that were going on during Manasseh's reign are pretty much identified in these verses. Regardless of what the setting is, the message is clear. Isaiah is con contrasting those who rest in God in verses 1 through 8 with those who don't in verses 9 through 12. I mean, the leaders he addresses in verses 9 through 12 were asleep on the job. They were blind guides who were ignorant of the Lord's ways. They were silent when it came to speaking out the, against the injustices of the community of faith. And the covenant of and, and those who were being unfaithful to God's covenant, they weren't they were speaking out against that. They weren't practicing righteousness and justice themselves. It, it might cost them their jobs. It might cost them their status. It might cost them their influence or worse, even money. And they were self-centered shepherds who cared only for their intense desires. And these verses serve as a warning to us all. So if you're a leader in a church, beware of succumbing to the temptation to be self-indulgent and self-centered, because that can happen. Pastors, ministers, and leaders are constantly tempted to become the center of their own ministerial world. They might believe they deserve to be privileged with certain things, and in reality, they are going to get exactly what they deserve. It will be the main course for the dogs unless they repent. So the warning for the church is that they must hold leadership accountable. We must do that. We must hold leadership account accountable. Pastors, ministers, and church leaders who are charged with being godly leaders, and when they fail, the church is called to call them to repent and turn back to God. It, this is never an easy calling for a body of believers, but it is necessary. A healthy church loves its leaders well when it calls them to repent and lead well. That's the second scene. Now the third and final scene is consider the outcomes in Isaiah 57. And Isaiah 57 sounds a lot like Psalm 1. And just before Judah was exiled into Babylon, yet this is a story of any believer living in a wicked world. Uh, friends, there are two ways to live. You can live for Jesus or you can live for the world. Let me read Psalm 1 to us as we move into this. Psalm 1 says this, How happy is the one... Did you hear the happiness there? He was talking about that in 56. He says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners 
or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's, Lord's instructions, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by beside flowing streams that bears his fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. See, Isaiah 57 is, is bookended by four verses. Two on each end that teach us the outcome of those who truly trust in God and have peace with God and those who don't. Look in verses 1 and 2. The righteous person perishes and no one takes it to heart. The faithful are taken away and no one realizing that the righteous person is taken away because of evil. He will enter into peace. They will rest on their beds. Everyone who lives uprightly. Now, Isaiah was referring to righteous people who lived among wicked people and they were just overlooked. They were just ignored. No one noticed them. They were faithful to the Lord, yet they suffered evil done to them and they perished right along with the wicked. But when they perished, they died having had peace with God going into God's presence. That's what happened. God would receive them and give them their inheritance. Now, this should strengthen us as we live in a, in a wicked society and culture today. And as culture grows more and more hostile toward Christianity, that should give us hope. Many believers will suffer. Some of us will suffer because of, uh, suffer because of our faith and others will suffer just because of the general wickedness and, and anti uh, being against Christ in the culture. But when God calls us home, we will possess peace with God. We'll be peace at peace in our hearts. And then in verses 3 through uh, 13a, Isaiah describes what we call, what we can call, the prostitute's family. And he calls them witches' sons, offspring of an adulterer, and a prostitute. Now, these are the mockers who walk in the path of the wicked. That's who they are. And in Isaiah today were the ones uh, living in Judah, calling themselves the people of God, but actually practicing the pagan religions. And they claimed to trust God. And in reality, they only trusted in their own ability to appease the idols that they had created. However, in verse 13 is where everything turns. In verse 13, for it lays out the difference between authentic faith and imitation faith. Verse 13 reads, says this, when you cry out, let your collection of idols rescue you. Let the wind, uh, the wind will carry all of them off. A breath will take them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. You see, now God mocks those who have been mocking the righteous. He tells them to call on the things that they trusted in to rescue them. And of course, those things won't because they can't, they're not real, they're not, they're not able to save. And then in the last part of verse 13, he turns it around and offers uh, whoever will trust him everything. Who says, whoever takes refuge in God will inherit the land and dwell on God's holy mountain. It sounds a lot like John three sixteen, does it not? Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever 
Whoever, it doesn't matter who you are. Verse 13b is our invitation to leave idols of our hearts behind and flee to refuge in Jesus and be renewed. It is our invitation to receive everything, our inheritance in Christ. Isn't that really what you want? It is. That's what we desire. And verses 14 through 19 are incredibly life-giving because they describe how God will renew his people if they will only humble themselves before him. He'll renew anybody who humbles themselves before him. And in other words, if they were to turn from their sin and turn to him for eternal life, he would give them new life. Look in verse 14. He said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle from my people's way. So verse 14 teaches us that God will build up whoever turns to him. Uh, He is not putting barriers in our way. He's taking them down. He's tearing them down so that if we will but just humble ourselves and confess we need him. Hey, I need you, Jesus. I need help here. I can't do this. And we'll just turn to Christ. We'll be saved. We'll be saved Then in verse 15, 15 is an amazing verse, and in it God is telling us that he dwells in two places at the same time. Said for the high exalted one, whoever lives, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. So where does God dwell? He is the exalted one who lives in a high and holy place. We get that. That's where he dwells. But he also dwells with the humble and the oppressed. With the humble and the oppressed. He dwells with them so that he may revive them and renew them. So friend, if you're looking for God and you can't find him, if you humble yourself, guess what? He'll find you. He'll come to you. You don't have to look for him. He'll be looking for you. You know what? That's good news. I love how Ray Ortland Jr. explains this verse. He says, God is not like us. For us, there's no neighborhood too classy for us to move up to if only we can afford it. But God doesn't value upward mobility. He values downward mobility, not because he feels uncomfortable dwelling in the high and holy place, but because down low, It's where he finds the people who are open to him. Lowliness is the humility that admits where I really belong is at the bottom. What I really deserve is to be nobody. That, says Ortland, is so liberating. Life opens up when we think like this. Wow, that's a good word. Wouldn't our little church be amazing? If we came in thinking this way, we came in saying something like this, Father, let me be with the lowly and the oppressed today. Make me humble. How can I be like you and build others up and be careful not to build myself up? How can I put others' needs before my needs? How can I encourage others and not expect to be encouraged? Help me overcome my resistance of talking to new people and people who are not like me. That's kind of a way, that's the way the lowly talks. That's the way we, we, we want to come into church on Sundays or meet people out in the community and we begin to talk about our faith in Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, if our little church was filled with this kind of humility in 2023, what kind of community of faith would we have in this body? We would be one where those who are hurting and struggling would realize that's those people there. I can hang out with them and they can point me to Jesus because I know they're going to accept me just like I am. And they're going to point me to the one who will help me. They don't make it about them. They make it about Jesus. But let's keep going because Isaiah has more to say, right? He's not done. He's not done teaching us about the heart of our God. Listen to verses 16 through 19. For I will not accuse you forever. I will not always be angry. For then the spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath which I have made. Because of his sinful greed, I was angry. So I struck him. I was angry and hid. But he went on turning back to the desires of his heart. Now that's what they were doing. They just kept turning away, turning away, turning away, turning away. And then in verse 18 says this, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. You see, in these three verses, Isaiah is telling us that God's people, that, that they were exiled because of their sin, but he hadn't abandoned them. He was actually disciplining them and for their good to bring them back to him. He was not gonna be angry with them forever or they would just completely lose heart. So instead he promised he would renew them and he would do in them what they couldn't do. They couldn't turn back, so I'm gonna do more. I'm gonna overcome that resistance. And he said he would speak words of comfort to them and create in their hearts words of praise. He would revive them, he would heal them, he would fill them with his peace. Now, <laughs> there's, there's not a person in here that deserves any of that because we are those people in that verse. We've all turned back and yet God does more in our hearts to bring us to him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that incredible? I mean, do you ever come to a worship service and you have had such a rotten week? You don't have any words of praise. I mean, you just come in and everything's heavy. Have you ever come in to worship and you know your heart and your life's just a mess Anxiety and restlessness are creating a storm in your heart. That's what we're going to see in this text. And then you discover as you begin to hang out with God's people, as you begin to worship, God begins to put words of praise in your heart. He begins to do something in your life. And all of a sudden, when you hear others speak words of faith and song and in prayer and reading scripture together as a congregation, your heart is softened and is filled with praise. And this happens. The spirit of God is beginning to renew your heart. Let him do that work. Now, here's the deal. Anxiety and restlessness and discontentment and turmoil, it will drain the life out of us if we let it. It is only when we humble ourselves and become lowly in heart that the peace of God will drive out the restless storm that rages. Listen, don't let verses 20 and 21 define your life. These, in these verses, we see that other bookend, I talk about the four verses that were bookend, two at the front and two at the back. Here's the last two. But the wicked are like storm tossed, like the storm tossed sea, where it cannot be still. And its water churns up, mire, muck. There's no peace for the wicked, says my God. That's a frightening verse. That's a frightening verse. 
Friends, we're not born with peace of God in our hearts. We are by nature restless and never content. We, we are never satisfied, never grateful, never relaxed. We, we are like the storm-tossed sea and our hearts are white capping with the foam of restlessness if we're not trusting God. We need a Savior. We need a Savior who will speak peace over the storm-tossed sea of our hearts. We need a Savior who will say to our hearts, peace be still. And we need to, to obey the Savior when He says to us, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's good news. Let's pray.